Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today on the show, we're going to talk about the inability to actually pastor a church if the church is not actually leading. Now, Aaron, I know you have some pretty strong convictions uh, when it comes to the gathering of the church, the necessity of that, and how it's pretty impossible to pastor without that. But before we get there, maybe we can just spend a little bit of time talking about the foundational issue of what is the church? What is the church? And maybe even answering questions like, you know, church doesn't need to gather to be the church. Yeah, well, we often hear people say that. What's amazing is there's tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Christians across Canada and you do see comments online to the effect that, well, you know, our relationship is just with Christ. Uh, the church is great, but we don't have to meet in a building in order to be the church. Well, first of all, it's true. We don't have to meet in a building to be a church, but we have to meet to be a church. Now, people might say, well, that's not, doesn't that doesn't sound right. Maybe a helpful distinction would be for people to understand that the universal church that is all those who've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have repented of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That universal body, the bride of Christ, doesn't actually meet. It's all over the world. It doesn't meet, and it doesn't have to meet in order to be the church of Jesus Christ. But we're talking about local churches. Local churches have to meet to, by definition, be churches. The word ecclesia, which many listeners will be familiar with, the etymology of that means outcalled or called out. And so you have people going around saying, well, the, the church is the called out ones. In other words, it's just uh, a, a group that's different than the world. That's what we would call like an etymological root fallacy, meaning that we are limiting our understanding of what that word means by just exploring the etym etymology of the word itself. If you look at the word used in context, the word means gathering or community. Uh, and so to be a local church, I mean, there's many things local churches do and must believe in order to be a legitimate church. But the point I want to make is that you can't actually be a local church without gathering. Now, this doesn't mean you can't skip a week or you can't go on vacation or you can't be sick. But if your church is habitually not meeting, and thus we have the warning in Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the gathering together of believers as some are in the habit of doing. If your church is habitually not meeting, it's actually not a church. So if uh, under a lockdown, months and months and months and months and months has gone by and your church is not meeting, well, God bless your people. I hope they're being ministered to in some way, shape, or form, but you've actually ceased being a church. You're not currently a local church because the, the 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 very definition of a church is a gathering, an assembly of believers. And so this is why it's fundamental that churches gather in faithful worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they're in a church building or not is irrelevant, but they have to gather in some way, shape, or form. And the reason why we are resistant to um, the current measures that the government has put in place is because unless you're a church just composed of a few tens of people, 
you are effectively unable to meet. A church of our size cannot meet under the current lockdown rules. That's the law. Yeah. So, and maybe to point to that, what uh, constitutes the church? Is there like a numerical number in scripture that you have to have uh, a quorum of 15 people or something to make a church? Or what? what is the uh, definition there? No. I mean... <laughs> In, in Orthodox Judaism, you have to have the 10 men for the quorum. And this is why, by the way, because we were working pretty close-knitly with uh, the Orthodox Jewish community the first lockdown. This is why I believe the Ford government moved the minimum uh, in Ontario from 5 to 10. Because when there was only 5 allowed under the first, first lockdown, you might think, well, why did they go from 5 to 10? Because the Jewish community pushed back. They wanted 10. So it, it's just another example of the fact that a lot of these numbers are politically derived in order to appease certain groups. And I'm delighted that the Jewish community got what they wanted. But it doesn't give churches of 500, 1,000, 1,500 people any latitude. I, I've had you know well-meaning but frankly naive people make comments to me like, well, it's not true that you can't meet. You know, you can still have 10 people. Folks, <laughs> we can't meet. Okay. When you have a thousand people that identify with your church, you can't meet. What are we supposed to do? Run 125 services a week? I mean, it's ridiculous. You're effectively closed. And there's many reasons why uh, it's also you know, essentially impossible to legitimately pastor a church through electronic means. You, ju you just can't do that. In the absence of physical presence, in the absence of actually meeting, you, you can't pastor your church. Well, how about we go there and ch chat about the uh, the inability of that in terms of what are those, wh why is it impossible, virtually impossible to pastor elder uh, if you're not meeting with your people? Well, I love the biblical analogies of flock, shepherd, sheep, overseer. Um, these help us to understand the organic nature of the Christian church. And in scripture, those that oversee, that elder, that shepherd the church are called pastors or shepherds. And the, the church is called a flock and the people are called sheep. Now this is not meant to uh, communicate, well, you know, Christian people are stupid or something like that, like sheep, mm -hmm. but it's it's meant to help us to understand the, the guardianship, the oversight, the protective nature of pastoral leadership. Now, many of our listeners may know that I have a little hobby farm and we've had sheep. We don't have sheep right now, but we've had sheep, but I do have cattle. So I know a thing or two about flocks. And when you're dealing with animals, with livestock, you don't have to babysit them. You don't have to be there all the time, but there are certain things you have to do in order to keep them safe, in order to keep them um, you know, protected and well-fed and well-nourished and growing for whatever purposes you, you have them for, for meat or wool or whatever it might be. Um, and no, no farmer, no sheep farmer, no cattle farmer, no chicken farmer would ever agree to some law that said, look, you can't be around your animals anymore. You just have to watch them on video. It's actually impossible to be a farmer just watching your animals on video or, you know, if they could speak, you know, phone calling them. And there's several reasons for this. One of the things that uh, animals require is watchful oversight. And in the same way, pastors are overseers over the flock. So one of the things we have to do is watch our people, overseers. We oversee them. 
We have to watch them. We have to observe them. We have to watch their behavior. We have to watch for signs of health, signs of sin. We have to watch for signs of service. We have to watch how they interact with each other. Every good pastor is always watching his people. He's looking out at them when he's preaching. He's he's trying to get a sense for their response, how they're acting, how they're interacting. He's watching them and interact with them in the foyer. He's inviting them over to his home for coffee or a meal in order to watch. And much of pastoral ministry actually revolves around discernment, where you discern as you watch and interact with your people what the strengths and weaknesses are, how you can speak into their lives. So one of the greatest compliments to, that a good pastor will ever receive is when he's preaching, people will say things like, were you listening in on our phone calls this week? Or were you were you like a fly in the wall in our house? That's a compliment because that means you're a pastor that's, you're not literally doing that, but you're you're watching your people. You have your thumb on the pulse of your people. That's not possible to do if you reduce church down to watching an online sermon or providing people with a few songs to sing every week. So, you know, we in in Proverbs 23 or 27, 23, it says, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. You gave me that verse, Chris, and I appreciate that. Um, in order to give attention to our herds, our flocks, we need to provide watchful oversight over them. That means we need to be in physical proximity. Mm -hmm. Now, carrying that idea of the analogy of farming, which is all throughout scripture, you look up and it's just all throughout. Um, You could also, I guess, apply that to other areas, not just, you know, watching, but thinking about um, like, yeah, what what other things you would encounter, I guess, as a farmer that your animals are running into? Yeah, well, we've had some situations in our little farm where animals get sick. I'll, I'll tell you a crazy story. It's actually pretty cool. Listeners will be interested in this. So I noticed on one of my bulls that he was developing facial warts. This is last year. And I thought, okay, this is kind of weird. Like, what is this all about? And it started growing on his neck and his face and all that kind of stuff. So I called my vet and I said, you know, what do I do? Is there like some sort of a a vaccine or some sort of a pill or tablet? And she says, well, this is going to sound really crazy, but what you need to do is get him in a headlock. We have head gates for that. So I did that. Take a pair of pliers and pull the ward off. So we did that. Grind it up, mix it in with some corn, and feed it no. back to him. <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> so I'm like, seriously? She's like, yeah, because the the, the warts are external, so there's the, the the body doesn't sense them enough to develop antibodies. But if you actually cause them to ingest the virus that creates the wart, they will develop antibodies. So I did this, and like within a week or two, these things are gone. And then another, we did it with another animal later on. Now. Uh, it's just kind of an interesting story. There's been other instances where we've had to, t- you know, tend sort of be lay veterinarians and tend to our animals. But being able to observe your animals up close helps you to see the disease that they might have and then to respond appropriately. And, you know, people in our church still, str- we all struggle with disease, the disease of sin, addiction, bad attitudes, um, speech that we shouldn't words that come out of our mouth we shouldn't say, uh, relational discord. We see none of that when we're separated from our flocks. And again, I just have this, it it, it irks me and bothers me that so few of like the pro-lockdown, pro-compliance pastors seem to have this notion that all they're doing is just providing services to their people. I'm just providing a sermon or I'm providing songs. I would ask those of you that haven't met with your church for a year, how do you assess disease in your flock? 
How do you do that? How, how do you, how do you know when people are tanking? I heard a, a friend of mine said to me recently, he was talking to an, I know it's kind of sounds weird, but a friend was talking to a friend who said about 50% of my flock is gone and I don't even, I don't even know where they are. Hmm. So just as a, a good shepherd needs to be with his flock in order to assess disease. So a good pastor needs to be with his um, flock in order to uh, his people in order to assess their disease and respond appropriately. We're not going to make people eat their own warts, but we need to be able to respond appropriately to to the diseases they have. Yeah. Now I know a lot of pastors have been, uh, you know, doing phone trees, calling people. The challenge with that obviously is people don't tell you what their disease is often, right? They may not even know themselves what's going on in their lives. Sure. I, you know, sometimes people come to us and sometimes we have, because they see in themselves something that needs to change. But other times we have to go to them because they don't see in themselves what need, or won't admit. So when you're analyzing disease, you, in the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ, people may self-disclose, you know, call or come in for an appointment or whatever. And we can do that under the current circumstances, you know, your physical distancing and all that, you can meet with one or two people. But a lot of shepherding is calling people out on things that maybe maybe it's a blind spot or they just won't admit it. And so again, if if you're separated from your flock for a few weeks or a few days or whatever it might be, it's probably not going to be the end of the world. But we're way over a year now. I know you were mm-hmm. talking to a fellow this week who's in somewhat of an official capacity and they're talking probably another year is what mm-hmm. we're going to. So literally you can have people potentially disconnected from their church for two years. Now, if you live for 70 years, it's like a huge portion of your entire life. And there's a whole lot of disease that can grow in two years in a person's life without watchful oversight. Mm -hmm. Now, we know there's many pastors or leaders listening that do care about their sheep, but we should be warned from passages like Ezekiel 34, where it talks like Ezekiel is called by the Lord to prophesy and to say things like to the the shepherds of Israel, you know, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. It's very, very hard to do that when you don't have even something to bring them to Mm -hmm. other than an online service where you're competing with the rest of the world. So I wanted to chat, uh, get your input a little bit on, um, this is a time when the wolves, so to speak, can prey on the sheep that are isolated. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can chat a little bit about just protection from the wolves. Yeah, one quick comment just based upon that passage you just quoted. So when we're protecting our flocks from disease, we often have to call them to to us or go to them. Uh, they typically don't come your direction. And this is why you know that passage speaks of the lost you have not sought. You know, we're, we seek and save the the true loss, but there's a sense in pastoral ministry where we're also seeking after the found who are starting to act like the lost again, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we have to be men of initiative. So in terms of protection from wolves, this is another thing. So we, we here in Essex County, we have, you know, our, our fair share of coyotes. And um, it always makes me a little bit nervous when we have a new calf on the ground that the coyotes are going to leap the fence in the night and try to take it out. So... We have to bring it into the corral or protect it in some way in order to keep the coyotes, the quote-unquote wolves, away. And then if you have smaller animals, um, you know, kittens or um, young chickens or these sorts of things, you have to protect them from hawks. And 
you know, because you're not allowed to shoot hawks in Canada, there's an abundance of hawks around farms. So you have to provide protection. And in, in the same way, one of the roles of classical roles of the pastor is to protect their flocks from wolves. And this means you have to be, so be with your people. So wolves primarily come in the form of, you know, false teachers. So um, I know people have access to all kinds of online content and books and stuff, much of which is great theology, some of which is very poor theology. But there's always a sense in which you can sort of vet and filter some of that out when the people are with you and you're able to preach directly to them into their issues, into their concerns. You're able to meet in your small groups, your discipleship groups, and again, in, in foyers. A lot of ministry takes place in foyers. Mm-hmm. I've found that over the years, chatting with people before and after the service, having people over to your home and whatnot. And uh, so one of the roles of of a farmer, a shepherd, a pastor— is to protect their flocks from wolves. And when we tell our people to stay home and stay safe, we're actually putting them in a place that's not very safe. It's a place where wolves visit, you know, where formal, f- formal, uh, former addictions come back, where false teaching can be heard, where, you know, relationships can go sour. So incarnational ministry helps to mitigate against that. It it allows us to um, identify the false teachers, the false teaching, the false notions of inappropriate behavior that people are engaged in and, uh, you know, deal with it quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that can be said to our shame in some ways is that false religions often are more committed to reaching and evangelizing people. I received a handwritten letter in my inbox, in my mailbox actually last week from okay. a Latter-day Saint oh. because they're not, uh, or sorry, from the Jehovah's Witnesses because they're not going door to door right now. But I've heard it said and read in articles before and I found it to be true as well that when it comes to online ministry, there's always going to, first of all, there's always going to be somebody better than your church. Unless sure. you're a mega church listening to us and have a fantastic online ministry, there's always going to be better resources. And when it comes down to that, um, they're going to go for often better resources if um, there's not the relationship tied to it. But this to say the Latter-day Saints dominate the internet when it comes to, you know, talking about Jesus. And so years ago, I read an article where somebody was saying, you know, essentially, if you have somebody sitting in a room and they raise their hand and say, I want to hear about Jesus. And you're like, I'm going to move over to that person to answer their question. The person from the Latter-day Saints is always there first answering right. the question. Yeah. And so just again, a reminder, uh, you know, how important it is obviously to do ministry in person, to gather and to, to really, I guess, up our game. Well, just to underscore it. that point, this is just, just came to mind. And again, this is sort of the farming analogy. So you think of milking cattle. Um, I, I don't, I don't milk cattle, but from what I've heard, uh, there are basically a handful or maybe two handfuls of purebred, um, high performance bulls in in the world that uh they that are used for artificial insemination to create the the, the world's best dairy herds well if you're a dairy farmer and the, and the ultimate goal is to produce as much milk as possible and to have high yield in order to make the maximum amount of money you're not going to borrow you know your your buddy's um you know half crippled um <laughs> bull from down the road why would you not, 
use the services of these, you know, superior bulls in order to build the best herd you possibly could. But the problem with that is over time you have you have animals that are more closely related. Uh, the gene pool becomes less diverse, and all of the quote unquote regular bulls become useless. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, if we just keep pushing the church, pushing the church online, the reality is people are just going to start listening to you know the the best of the best, as you've alluded to mm-hmm. the 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 most sophisticated, the most flashy, the the best communicators, et cetera. And you know, average run of the mill pastors are just going to kind of be pushed to the wayside. And um, I'm not sure this is helpful because this this professionalizes the ministry. We already have this problem in, you know, Christian culture. These this notion of the the superstar pastors or the superstar preachers that, uh, you know, if they say jump, everyone says how high because such and such says it. Whether he's right or wrong, or he's smarter or more godly than the next guy, who knows. But we we tend to quote the guys that are sort of um, the, the most famous, mm-hmm. and you know I'm not opposed to people listening to a broad variety of preachers and teachers. It's it's a unique privilege that we have at this point in history. But if we have this idea that um, people can just be pastored by some superstar pastor three countries away or something like that. I think we really do damage to the body of Christ. There's less diversity. Uh, there's more potential for disease to uh, slip in, and there are fewer people that can really exercise their gifts in order to serve. So it is important for uh, people to be connected with the local church and to allow their pastor or pastors to actually shepherd them. Yeah, and it is hard when, you're, as a pastor, you're being compared to everything else and you're trying to produce an online service that's 10 out of 10 and that's well, that doesn't not happen really... to you chris because you're a 10 out of 10 <laughs> preacher of course thanks but... <laughs> yeah right <laughs> oh man so uh we could chat about more like take the far- farming analogy even further i'm sure and talk about things like reproduction like sure so um yeah we were given a great commission to go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and um we call that multiplication. We, we're multiplying the church. All of us is moving towards death, and we are behind us multiplying our disciples. And we are preaching the gospel and um, making sure that that people are built up in, in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And leading people to Christ, spiritually reproducing is, you know, can a person just jump on a YouTube channel, listen to a sermon, come to faith in Jesus Christ and start to grow? Yes. Is that generally sufficient? Never. It's never sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the whole body imagery of 1 Corinthians where each person is just a part of the body and we need each other, so we need exposure to one another's giftedness and abilities in order to, to grow up and to grow out in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, to become faithful followers. Um so, so much of what we do in terms of discipleship is, you know, up close and personal. Uh, we we are disi- we we are disciples who've been made, and now we are, you know, making more disciples. And in that process, we're also multiplying our efforts. Uh, so, um, if I reach one. 
and then I reach another, and those two reach two more, and those mm-hmm. two reach two more. We're multiplying our efforts, and you know, we're trying to. It's not like we're just trying to keep up with world population, but we're we're trying to expand and multiply the the ministry of the church around the world in different neighborhoods and different communities. How many churches are being planted right now? Very few. I know of a couple. My son's involved in a church plant up in Kitchener. And then there's a, 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 a church plant in Romania that we're sponsoring that kind of started at the beginning of, of the, uh, the lockdowns and the pan- pandemic and so forth. But it's, man, that's, it's hard work. It's hard to minister to people when you're starting during a time when you're open, then you're closed, and you're open, then you're closed, mm-hmm. and you're allowed to meet, and you're not allowed to meet. And then, you know, it's, it's just really very, very challenging. And no question about it, it does hinder ministry. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the only churches, r- rightly or wrongly, that I know of that are growing are ones that have made an effort to reopen, to, to reopen or to stay open. Now, I'm not saying that um, as as you know the proof that they're necessarily they or we are necessarily doing the right thing. Although I think we are, but I'm just pointing out the fact that how can you possibly grow and multiply and reproduce if you're not meeting? I, mm-hmm. I just don't think that's happening unless you're just uh, counting uh, the number of people that happen to be watching your online teaching on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. But that's, again, a very, very limited, fragmentary part of you know the broader task of Christian discipleship. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen in the education sphere, uh, they've been talking about the the drawbacks to online education and how it's kind of creating some real significant problems uh, in that world. And we almost think about that too, in terms of the church, you, um, how I, what's the right way to say this, but basically, you know, we're creating disciples right now and you're creating disciples in a certain atmosphere. So if you're creating them online, you're creating a certain type of disciple with certain deficits. Mm -hmm. So the deficit of online discipleship is that you're creating people who in person have very little skills. They might be good in an online world, uh, it's certain parts of it, but can we talk about the equipping part of we're trying to disciple people to real life engagement. We're not going to be online for the rest of our lives. There might be parts of it, I guess, uh, but there's a real part of, and we've made the argument for in Christian or incarnational in-person ministry. And that's just not being developed right now. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of farmers nowadays have some pretty sophisticated software to monitor and weigh and measure and follow up on how their herds develop or even how their crops are farmed and planted and how many seeds per acre and all that kind of stuff. And it's pretty cool. But there's also just the old-fashioned observation being out in the field or in with the herd that really allows you to be a good shepherd or a good farmer. Um, there's no, there's no, there's no way that any church can ever develop an online platform or a series of programs that will fully equip people for the work of the ministry. Pastoral ministry requires observation. It requires being in and among your people. So, how about from from the highest levels of leadership down? Let's say we're looking to ordain new elders. Well, you have to watch people. We have great elders in our church. And the reason why we have great elders in the church is because we set the standards high and we watch and observe. Mm -hmm. So we watch how men interact with their wives. We watch how they interact with their kids. We watch how their kids interact with other kids. Mm -hmm. 
We, we observe how they handle conflicts. We observe how they respond to rebuke. We put them in situations, meetings, where we can watch how they weigh in on decision-making, right? And what their responses are, how nervous they are, how confident they are, how prayerful they are, how biblically astute they are. It's this old-fashioned way of ob- observing people watching how they function, living life together, and it gives you a sense as to whether or not this person qualifies for pastoral leadership. There's no software that can do that. Mm -hmm. You have to be in and among people. When we're helping Christians to develop their spiritual gifts, you know, am I gifted as a teacher, uh, a servant, uh, am I gifted in the area of generosity or discernment, whatever it might be? You have to be with people. Mm -hmm. You have to be with people. You have to watch the response of audience. You have to watch of their audience. You have to observe uh, what fruit is born from their ministry. Again, how they respond to criticism. Uh, all, all these kinds, of, their, their timeliness, their lack of timeliness, their ability to handle money or not, all these kinds of things. It's very observational. It's, it's much like parenting. You know, when you have kids, you live your life with them. And parents that have kids that go off the rails are often parents that don't spend time with their kids. They provide a room, they provide the laptop, they drop them off at school, but they don't observe, they don't watch. Mm-hmm. They don't have their, to use the analogy, their, their thumb on, on, the, on the pulse of their, their child's social life or spiritual life. There's not, there's not like ongoing conversation and questioning and laughing and processing of joys and sorrows. So this is like the, the old art of pastoral ministry is we're not CEOs, we're not just guys that get up front and deliver, you know, a stellar sermon and get a worship team up front to perform a bunch of songs, and then, you know, sit down and collect the offering and leave. Mm-hmm. We're living our lives together organically. And um this gives us an opportunity to to develop people, gifts, their their gifts, e- even to discern whether or not a person's truly a Christian or not. You know, by their fruits you shall know them. How do you know what the fruits of your people are online? Mm-hmm. They Just can, Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, see what they say. Well, yeah, that's where our fruits often are thrown to the side, right? But um, so equipping and identifying people for ministry and leadership is is um, severely thwarted mm-hmm. without time together, time mm-hmm. spent together. And even as you mentioned that uh, analogy of like thinking about parenting with your children, I think about my four kids and, you know, each one is so unique. And when it comes to discipline, the discipline isn't meted out the same for each one because you know what each one needs. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's it's incredibly complex, really, yeah. when you think about it, because each situation is kind of unique and their tone of voice, their body mannerisms, all kinds of stuff that you can't pick up mm-hmm. on when you're not in the room. It would be incredibly difficult to pastor or to, to parent my children over video right. from you know, and another city. Or- and certainly impossible if you're just providing them with like lessons. Okay, here's mm-hmm. your five lessons on how to be a good kid today. And here's your homework and you're never with them. That's literally what many churches in our country have been reduced down to. Mm-hmm. There's no physical interaction. Mm-hmm. So so could you talk a little bit about discipline in terms of what you would see, how you would see that being important to be in person? I think I used to think of discipline simply in terms of Matthew 18, where we, you know, if someone does something really egregious, they're confronted, they're confronted again, they're potentially excommunicated. But if you step back and you think about the word discipline, discipline is more than just punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, discipline is is the whole series of 
conversations and confrontations and words of encouragement and assessment that takes place as we discipline, disciple one another to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're constantly micro-disciplining one another. The way we correct uh, what another person has said, the way we speak truth into a person's life, the way we answer a question. Um, there was a fellow on our uh, um, church conversation forum there. I just Apparently he posted it a week ago, but I just noticed it yesterday. He had basically said, you know, when I first met you, speaking of me, he offered me a compliment, and then he made a he made some comment about, um, well, don't let it go to your head. And I I had said what I said to a lot of people because one of my pet peeves, as you know, is when people mm-hmm. give you a compliment and say don't don't let it go to your head. And my perspective is just don't even bother giving me a compliment then because what you've done is you've mixed a compliment with a potential insult. Mm-hmm. So what I said to him is, uh, when someone gives you a compliment, don't say don't let this go to your head. Let them do with it what they're going to do with it. If they turn it into something that's going to inflate their ego or pride, they'll have to stand before God for that. Mm -hmm. You won't have to worry about that. Um, So that was he just made this comment that he appreciated that little bit of correction that was helpful for him. And I I don't even remember having that conversation in all honesty, but we're we're always adjusting and correcting. And I'm being adjusted and corrected in the context of relationships. And even the tone or, or, you know, right now you and I are sitting across table. I can kind of read your body language. I can mm-hmm. see, oh, Chris is starting to crack a smile or always oh, he's, he's looking kind of confused or whatever it might be. I need to, you know, maybe I need to bring some clarity. The discipline is, is all the little checks and balances, the micro adjustments that we, we bring into each other's lives as we live life together incarnationally. And we're, you know, Christianity, as I've said before, and I heard this years ago, I don't even remember the source, Christianity is an imitative faith. It's like, wow, that's interesting. We imitate Christ, but we also follow others to the degree they're following Christ. So we're not just following Christ, we're following others who are following Christ and trying to figure out what it means to be an adequate follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that requires, again, I sound like a bit of a broken record, physical presence. So what about um, some of the more, I guess, things you can't do uh, remotely? So funerals, weddings, obviously those are requiring as well. Yeah, life-altering events. I, I just think it's extremely sad. Again, people can say, well, you can still have a wedding, just 10 people. Okay, so you have um, the bride and the groom, that's two. You have an officiating pastor, that's three. Minimally, you have a best man and a maid or matron of honor, that's five. Okay, so then who do you invite? Mom and dad, mom and dad, and what? One, one sibling, grandparent. one grandparent, <laughs> one best friend. Like, let's just think about this from a very human perspective. A, a very um, let's let's be empathetic. That's that's not sufficient to have ten people at your wedding. It's not sufficient for anybody except for the most introverted people. Ninety nine percent of people want fifty, a hundred, two hundred people at their weddings, and there's. There's pain in that. There's pain in relational consequences when your 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 wedding is reduced. Not to mention the yo-yo effect, where you have people literally. You could be getting married on a Saturday and have fifty or hundred people invited. On the Friday, the premier comes out and says, "No, we're going back to 10. Mm-hmm. The whole thing's gonzo, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just the the inequity in that, the lack of 
forewarning, the lack of ability. Two of my kids right now are engaged to be married. And, you know, they're thinking about, okay, well, what date? Are we going to be out of a lockdown? Where should we meet? What's plan A? What's plan B? Oh, you know, which uncle's going to get invited? Which cousin? You know, how do we prepare food? Like, it, it just becomes an impossible mess. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter's trying to find a a, a, a wedding dress. It's like you, you got to set up Zoom calls and then they, you know, they show you the dresses in the camera and then you got to go pick them up, try them on in a box and bring them back. Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. just such a mucky mess out there for people. So that 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 might be considered by some a minor inconvenience. Yeah, I tell that to a 21-year-old bride. Mm-hmm. And then we have um funerals where, you know, if if you passed away, Chris, or I mm-hmm. passed away, and uh, you know, I know lots of people. I'm I hope there'd be more than nine other I'm not sure if I'm counted in the 10, but I'm sure <laughs> yeah. there'd be more than uh, <laughs> you know, nine other people that would want to attend. And uh Hundreds would want to attend, you know, your funeral, of course, because they love you and they want to mourn and, you know, be with your wife and children and all that kind of thing. And to the inhumanity of disallowing people who've known, who've been in loving Mm -hmm. relationships sometimes for generations from mourning that loss is despicable. You know, last year it was, I'll just say too, I want to call out the media a little bit. There was, you know, reports, all the, they're bringing in refrigeration Mm -hmm. Um, uh, morgues, right? Morgues, yeah. portable morgues, the hospital. It's proof that, you know, we're overflowing with corpses. Well, that's not true. The reason why they were bringing them in is because people couldn't plan funerals. Mm-hmm. So every day people die. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take too many days or weeks if you're not allowing people to have funerals and properly mourn and bury their dead. If families are saying, no, we're going to wait two or three weeks because we want to have a proper funeral. Well, yeah, you have to bring in refrigeration wagons. Mm-hmm. And I know that because I have friends in the funeral mm-hmm. industry. But um, by the way, my my son, I don't know if I told you this, um, just got hired as like an assistant at a funeral home. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, so it should be interesting and kind of blend in well to, with his you know pastoral tasks. But um, these kinds of things are inhumane. And they might look good on paper from some guy trying to reduce case numbers or whatever, but they're just not feasible mm-hmm. ways of people living their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, we haven't even talked about some of the absolutely critical parts of church life, like baptism, those the the, the Lord's Supper. Um, those things are obviously necessary to be in person, or maybe not. Some people are saying they aren't. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't have hit that. That's like a trigger for you, I know. Well, I, I'm curious a year or so from now, or whenever all this is over, if it ever is over, uh, I'm curious what, how pastors that have tried to convince their people to stay home and convince their people that they don't need to be baptized or they don't need to celebrate the Lord's Supper, et cetera, I'm curious what their big plan is to call people back. Mm-hmm. They've essentially made the church not only non-essential but non-functional, which is not—it's completely unnecessary. Um, at least that's my viewpoint. They may, I'm sure they don't intend that, but I, I think that they're setting themselves up for failure in that regard. So yeah, we have—we've talked about the inability to truly shepherd a church without physical presence, but the current circumstances forbid the gathered church from celebrating the Lord's Supper, from participating in public Christian baptisms, various ministries and programs that are pretty significant that we see fruit from are day camps 
you know, we usually have, you would know better than me, what, 100 or 100? Yeah, somewhere to 150, yeah. 150 kids for summer day camp. Uh, last year, you know, we had to hold them in small groups in backyards because that's all we were allowed to do. Um, and these kinds of things, they bear fruit for us. Our on-campus ministry, where your fewer students want to go to the university and sit in a dorm room on before a computer. Why, why would I move from Kingston to Windsor to sit in front mm-hmm. of a laptop and be taught when I could do it from home? So our our um, ministry to university students suffers. Our ministry to international students suffers. Um, just the whole idea of the church having an open door, being a place of refuge where lonely people, people that are spiritually confused can just come and sit under the sound of the gospel. You know, we can we can meet in other places, I suppose, barns, houses, outhouses, wherever, mm-hmm. but your public ministry, when it's suspended, mm-hmm. a whole aspect of what you're trying to do is suspended, and fewer people hear the gospel, fewer people have the opportunity to repent and believe. Now, again, I believe, in, if you're listening, I do believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God can overrule all that, but God generally uses human agents. Mm-hmm. In the same way that I believe God can heal people physically without the use of a hospital, but he generally uses the human agency of hospitals and physicians to mm-hmm. do that. So there's there's a lot of uh, those kinds of um, ministries that we have seen much, much fruit born from over mm-hmm. the years. We can't even plan for them. We don't know what's going to go on in the mm-hmm. next few months. I mean, I don't think it's going to be good, but uh, very difficult for us to really fully function as a church in the midst of lockdowns. Yeah. And I remember uh, first lockdown when we were starting to really gear up towards reopening, we received a message from an individual that uh, was just not even from our church, but thanking us for staying open, for wanting to be open. And then interestingly put in their message that they had at one point in their life been about to commit suicide one day and then actually drove past a church that was open and went into the church. They've never been to the church since. They're not particularly religious, but that day they their life was spared because of an open church. And that was obviously a huge encouragement. Yeah. Just the uh, you know the public place that people see and and know and can go to. Yeah, you know, let me just make um, one more sort of co- little collection of comments. A week or so ago was really really difficult on us. You know, it was difficult mm-hmm. on me. I took just took a week off, disconnected from it all because of the pressure and the attacks and and just the, the seeming impossibility of our, our situation. It was good just to kind of take a week, disconnect, to be recharged. And I'm blessed to say that it was a, a huge benefit to me. Um, but our, without question, our um, two greatest enemies are the media, and other Christians. Mm-hmm. The media has been despicable in their treatment of us. Uh, jump on the Windsor Star uh, today. Uh, jump on CTV or iHeart News and just watch how they cover things like the protests that are taking place, the Palestinian protests in Windsor. It's very different coverage, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, they, they use language of us when we try to reopen defiance, mm-hmm. right? use very different language of other groups. They did this last year mm-hmm. with the BLM uh, protests. I'm in favor of public protests. I'm not commenting on the my support or lack there for those two movements at this point. I'm just saying I'm in favor of, of those kind of protests. But it's it's both guns blazing 
it's it's the narrative of you know we're irresponsible, we're we're defiant, you know we're spreading a plague throughout the community when it's a Christian church, and the reporting is much more soft and objective and just almost mildly supportive mm-hmm. when it's other groups protesting, and then we have you know other churches. I have made and I, and I would dare people to find exceptions to this rule. I have made a very concerted effort not to name other churches or other pastors who have taken a very different viewpoint than I have. And you can search through my podcasts and my sermons, and and um, I, I don't think there are any. And if there are, it'll be extremely limited, and I'd be glad to apologize for any of them. But I don't think there are any because I've tried to stick to the issues, right? I've tried to stick to the issues. But wh- what we see is – Articles um, and uh, articles being written, professors, other pastors, naming me, naming Tim Stevens, naming Mike Teeson, naming James Coates, chastising uh, Jacob Rayum, chastising our stances, accusing us of being uh, a bad testimony, etc. Naming us, and these comments, which are very personal and frankly very hurtful, are often used by secular godless media to say, well, look, you guys are fringe. You're the, you're the fringe. The majority thinks it's okay to lock down, to be compliant, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I would just say to them, you need to stop that. Like stick to the issues, present your opinion, but stop naming us. Uh, create your own news cycles, right? Uh, this is not, this is not helping in the present or the future. And, you know, it, it it needs to um, to stop now. All of that is leading to some good news. So, I just wanted the listeners to hear that I firmly believe that we have on our side a massive number. I don't know if it's the majority or just a strong minority. I think we have a massive number of people in the public sphere that are fed up with mm-hmm. lockdowns, fed up with how churches have been treated. I was leaving the church parking lot yesterday, and a guy that's, best I can tell, not a Christian, he's a former cop, now real estate agent, jumps out of his car, runs up to me and says, hey, are you the guy that's in the news all the time? I'm like, well, who is this? You know, We started talking. He's talking how supportive he is of us and on and on and on. I've heard that from neighbors and different people. Now, I'd like for more of these people to speak up publicly, mm-hmm. right? But from the sidelines, uh, if you're a church or pastor that's concerned about your public witness— you need to get out and start talking to people. I think what you're going to find is a, a massive cross-section of the population wants churches to step up and take a stand and reopen and push back because they're fed up, and they're looking to churches like ours, like yours, to take a public stance because they will benefit from it. They know they're going to benefit from it. And somewhere back in the recesses of their minds, as they think about church history, you know they, they recall— stories and episodes of churches that stood for liberty and freedom. And this is part of our testimony. So not only are we trying to open our churches up fully, when I say open our churches, I mean fully regather, to be accurate. Not necessarily just opening a building, but we want to be able to fully regather. Um, we are benefiting not only our people, going back to all these farming analogies and shepherding conversations we've had, but we're also benefiting our fellow neighbor. Mm-hmm. The 
the person that doesn't know Jesus Christ, hopefully that will come to know Jesus Christ in the future because of our faithful witness. Well, you can check out more resources online at harvestwindsor.ca. We have right there our, our stance on COVID-19 and a whole lot of linked articles and statements there. Uh, we have the Pursuit of Glory blog that you can go to, pursuitofglory.org. You can now also find our uh, Leadership Now podcast uh, aired on CJXC Radio, Canada's constant Christian companion at 11 a.m. on Tuesdays and rebroadcast at 11 p.m. on Thursdays. And we've also partnered with our friends over at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network to reach even more listeners so you can download their app, the Fight, Laugh, Feast app and find Leadership Now and a growing list of other podcasts from across North America. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you to our listeners. Please make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast, and we'll uh, be back next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.